Debbie Millman will be back soon with a new episode of Design Matters. In the meantime, here's her interview with Krista Tippett, which was recorded in March of 2016. This is Design Matters with Debbie Milma from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Krista Tippett about her religious orientation, her struggle with depression, and about why it's so hard to understand our historical moment. The things we're shining a light on, the things that are getting all the attention, or the people who are getting all the attention, are probably not the ones who are changing the world. Here's Debbie Millman. Krista Tippett listens to people for a living. She's the host of On Being, the public radio show, so her voice is familiar to many people. But fans of the show hear her not only talking, but also listening. It's an odd thing to say, but you can actually hear her listening to her guests as they talk intimately to her about the big questions of science, spirituality, politics, art, and life. All that listening eventually coalesces into books that are inspired by her interviews. Krista Tippett has written three of them, and her latest is called Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. She joins me from her studio in Minneapolis to talk about it and about her career behind the mic. Krista Tippett, welcome to Design Matters. So glad to be with you. Krista, you always open your show by asking about the religious or spiritual background of your guest's childhood. So I'd like to ask that of you today. Can you tell us about yours? <laughs> yeah, well, in, I mean, in the course of writing the book, I always have answered that question in my own mind with talking about my Southern Baptist preacher grandfather, who was absolutely the riveting religious figure of my childhood. And he was, oh, he was strict. He was kind of a hellfire and brimstone guy. And his religion was all about rules and it was all about things you shouldn't do. And most things that were fun were on, <laughs> on his list. But there was a contrast between his rules and then what a loving, actually funny, smart, he was uneducated. He had a second grade education, but 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 how he was all those things too, and all of that kind of flowed into my contradictory idea of what God might be. There was also this backdrop of sadness in my childhood, which I haven't really ever talked about, which was in my own family with my own father, who'd been adopted and very traumatized, and there was this sadness that was, oh, and this fearfulness that was always hanging over him and therefore always hanging over us. And so I think one thing I've learned across the years is to really expand my idea of what spiritual is and the spiritual background. And so I would have to say it was a combination of that kind of contradictory kind of uh, wild religiosity and then this sadness, which was also part of the spiritual background of my childhood. Krista, do you believe in God? <laughs> I never ask anyone that question that way, by the way. You know that, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> That's why I'm asking you that. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, the word God is just too small for what I believe in. What do you mean? I mean, I could answer the question, yes, I could. Just that the word God is, well, first of all, it has all these connotations and it's freighted with all the different ways it gets used and thrown around the word. You know, that's all in my imagination, too. I would say that all these conversations I have, like, Phil, I have this rich, kind of wild, strange, expansive place in my head where I think about what the definition of God would be. And if I'm allowed to say, you know, for that to be God, <laughs> mm. then yes, I believe in God. <laughs> Do you consider yourself a, a member of a specific religion now at all? Um, Christianity is my mother tongue and homeland, and in me that was pretty formed, and that still feels true. You know, right now at this point in my life, I don't go to church. Um, I'm not all that associated with the kind of the institutional side of that. I I could imagine that that might be part of my life again. I mean, there's I love theology actually, and I love Christian theology, and but the interesting thing about that is. It's having a grounding in that, which I got when I went to divinity school in my 30s, 
has really been this fertile ground for for thinking about the depths and the questioning and the traditions of all of all kinds of other traditions. So I I'm working with a lot of different material <laughs> when I think about my spiritual life now. I want to talk a little bit about how you grew up. I know that when you were in high school, you were involved in the drama productions and the debate club. Did you ever think you might want to go into theater? I did a lot of theater, but the performance piece of it, I didn't enjoy in the end. And, you know, there's a performance piece to what I do now, but it's my least favorite part. Like being in a conversation I love and I'm not thinking about myself but when I have to, say, record the script for the show, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with that. But for years, that was really hard. And I went into this very kind of stilted mode. Um, so, so no. <laughs> yeah, any, any performance I've ever done, I've always gotten really bored with having to say the same thing over and over. And I find that really yeah. tedious. But, yeah. But you also said that being in the debate club was how your mind became alive. And yes. I was really intrigued by that. How so? Well, I was in a small town high school. You know, there was one high school in town. And the part of the country I grew up in, Oklahoma, is very kind of in a good American tradition, a really anti-intellectual part of the country. And so there just weren't a lot of rigorous classes. But debate was a place where I was actually really, you know, where I had to bring rigor to research and formulating questions. You know, I, I ended up quitting debate my senior year for that same thing that I didn't I didn't like the standing up and having a public fight about it. <laughs> but I did really love, I loved the research thing where, where I'd go to libraries and, you know, just dive deep into an idea. And that was the only place I was being asked to do that. You went to debate camp in Chicago this summer after your junior year in high school and have stated that it opened up the world to you. Yeah. At that point, what did you think was possible for your life? It sounds strange, maybe, but if I thought about the world beyond Oklahoma and Texas, like Texas was real to me, but it was just kind of this black hole. And and I didn't even have a lot of curiosity about it. I mean, I had, as I say, I had this longing, but it was very undefined. And I actually remember, have this memory of somebody talking about learning foreign languages, which is the way we talked about it then. And I said, I didn't see any point in that because I couldn't imagine ever being interested in going someplace where they spoke a foreign language, which is such, I can't, you know, I, that was me talking, right? Like, and I wow. remember, I mean, that person who said that. So when I went to Chicago, I still didn't really have a sense of what all was out there, but I met these kids and was in this place that was so different. And I just started to realize, wow, the world out there is immense and full of things I can't imagine, and that got to be exciting. It seems as if that debate camp was really important in terms of the direction your life took. You met somebody there that desperately wanted to go to Brown University, and though you'd never heard of it, you decided to apply there as well. Right. <laughs> was yeah. that really the sole criteria for choosing to go there? It was farther away on the map from Oklahoma <laughs> than any place else I applied. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've declared that going to Brown was like moving to Mars. In, in what way? How so? Oh, I mean, I was completely unprepared. You know, I, I hadn't been there before, and I didn't, um, I mean, it was like an alien planet in some ways, but I was very much like the first two years just kind of feeling my way. And Brown is loose enough that it was possible to do that and not fall through. What were you studying at that point? I studied history because I I liked the questions they asked. And I mean, that was something that was so shocking to me and exciting because I'd always thought of history as memorizing facts. And then I got to Brown and I remember, you know, taking this class my first or second year and they asked, you know, was the French Revolution inevitable? Was the was the final test? And I mean, I couldn't believe that's what they were asking. But eventually I learned to love the thought that that could be a question. Yeah, and I was going to say, it seems like the perfect kind of question for yeah. you. You 
write about how you threw yourself into the chances that were coming your way. You learned German, you backpacked around Europe, you spent a semester in a communist East German city on the Baltic Sea. And at that point, you said you stopped thinking about God and threw yourself into saving the world respectably by way of (laughs) journalism and politics. Krista, did you believe that thinking about God at that time was not a significant way to help the world? Yeah, I I didn't ever have any big rejection moment or I didn't become atheist, but I was pretty uninterested in religion and in God and I just didn't it didn't feel relevant to me as I settled into Brown and then went to Europe. Yeah, I just wasn't sure how it could be very important and therefore very interesting. <laughs> After college, you went to Berlin as a New York Times stringer, and you went there with no guarantee of a paycheck or a byline. That's astounding to me. What gave you the courage to do that without <laughs> I was any security? Uh, when I was 22, I was thinking about how I was going to live the rest of my life without becoming a bag lady. So <laughs> I think that's enormously courageous. Oh, yeah, I, I guess it is. I I don't think of myself that way. I. I think I actually need to give my younger self a little bit more credit. I mean, not only did you go someplace where there was no guarantee of a paycheck or a byline, but you were also going to a country that was in enormous turmoil. You mean Berlin, divided Berlin? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd been in Bonn and I'd been in East Germany, so I was going back closer to the part of Germany that I first knew. And Berlin, divided Berlin, yes, was the fault line of the Cold War. But as a place, you know, by the 80s, West Berlin was surrounded by East Germany. It was surrounded by the great communist sea. And it was a very contained, idiosyncratic, kind of a small town. So I was able to go there as a New York Times stringer and immediately kind of know everybody I I could want to know and, you know, be getting invited to diplomatic cocktail parties and be taken seriously because it just it wasn't a big universe. And, you know, I was ready to fail and to, like, go home with my tail between my legs. <laughs> but it, it, it worked out. <laughs> it seems that after you left Berlin and you lived in Spain, you lived in England, Scotland, and then the notions of spirituality and God came back to you, you then decided to pursue a master's in divinity from Yale. Yeah. Um, now, you've written that you didn't study theology in order to be ordained. So what motivated you to choose this particular course of study? So I had those about 10 years ending up in divided Berlin, which was such a political place. And I was in the end working for an an ambassador who was a nuclear arms expert. So I was like surrounded with, you know, policy thinkers and really serious stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And I I was really idealistic. I thought we were actually there to save the world. And there was a very unsettling kind of disjunction between the power that these people had who I was working with and the kind of immature, (laughs) unimpressive private lives they had. Mm. Um, And also the fact that they weren't actually there to save the world for the most part. I mean, there were some exceptions, but they were, you know, the the moving the missiles around was a real ego trip. Yeah, they were there to own the world. Yeah, yes. So it was exhilarating on some level to be part of that. But on another level, it was really unsettling, kind of morally unsettling. And then at the same time, I was living in divided Berlin, which was just really this great big social experiment where you take one people and divide them into two completely different worldviews. And I was also seeing this paradox at that human level of where people on the Western side of the wall had everything in contrast to the people in the East, but they could be really shallow and and, <laughs> and and have impoverished inner lives. And then I was very drawn to the people I came to know and love in East Berlin who really had nothing to work with, you know, kind of materially or really importantly in terms of their choices they had to make, but who created these lives of great beauty and dignity. And so I started thinking about that work of creating a life of dignity and beauty. And it was through that kind of an anguished inquiry that I started to 
ask what I now would call spiritual questions, but it took me a long time before I called them spiritual questions. And so when I went to divinity school, it was kind of at the end of that process where I was thinking, okay, actually maybe religion as the place that that has always asked these delving questions in, in the human sphere, maybe this is relevant and maybe it's important, And but I, I didn't quite trust that. I wanted to study it, like I wanted to apply my mind. And so that was the decision to go to divinity school. So I really wanted a theological education. But I I didn't completely rule out the idea that I'd get there and want to be ordained. But that's not why I did it. And it was pretty clear to me as soon as I got there that that's not why I was there. What were you imagining you were going to do with your degree? Well, I don't know. And I, I certainly never... Never. It's not like I had this idea in mind. If you'd told me about this back then, I probably would have been, you know, I would have thought that was great. <laughs> but I, I didn't know. It was a bit of a leap in the dark. I mean, I was doing this with my, my former husband, who was becoming ordained in the Episcopal Church. You know, I kind of had a companion in this. A comrade. Yeah, a comrade. And, and then our daughter was born while we were at Divinity School. I mean, I think of that time also as this becoming a parent, which is very formative. You graduated from Yale in 1994 and stated that you saw a black hole where intelligent coverage of religion should be. And at that time, you conducted what you've referred to as a far-flung oral history project for the Benedictines of St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. And it was really then that you began to imagine radio conversations about the spiritual and intellectual content of faith that could open imaginations and enrich public life. And in a report you wrote about the experience, you stated that the first person approach to religious speech is essentially about humanizing doctrine. Mm. And Krista, is this something that influenced how you wanted to talk about spirituality? I mean, is it really possible to humanize doctrine? Well, it was kind of a discovery that I made. And you have to remember, and, you know, depending on how old people are, they won't remember. But in the 1980s, 1990s, it was this moment of a few very strident religious voices. Mm, um, yes, the know, evangelists came yeah, to Yeah, Jerry Falwell, yeah. Pat Robertson. And it was a conclusion of their willingness to be out there, you know, speaking for God. And speaking for all Christians and also journalists' willingness to let them do that because it was very entertaining and they delivered sound bites, right? So you had this toxic effect of religion on American politics and society. And this is just an aside, but I think that the phenomenon that we now see of people under 30 who aren't, you know, the nuns, as they say, who are not affiliated with the tradition. And I don't think we should be at all surprised that people who were born and who grew up in the 1980s and 90s and seeing religion have that public effect are allergic to it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's religion without spirituality. Exactly. Yeah. And and without an integrity of, you know, who you are inside and what you say you believe and how you live and how you treat others. And so that's what I'm watching. I'm watching that as somebody who's just studied theology and found theology thrilling and relevant and nuanced. And then, um, I mean, you asked what I thought I was going to do. I had no idea what I was going to do. And I end up in Minnesota, you know, with a young child. But there was this amazing place, you know, Benedictines, monastics are kind of amazing in the whole history of humanity in ways we don't think about very often. So there's this amazing Benedictine monastery in the middle of Minnesota. And they saw me as somebody who had a journalistic background and a theological education, they've invited me to do this oral history project. So I go on this kind of adventure, interviewed about 55 people across about a year or two. And some of these people were big names of Christianity in the 20th century. And some of them were just, you know, extraordinary people who'd come through that place. But every single one of those conversations was intelligent, thought-provoking and fun. Mm, <laughs> nice like combination. If, and if there's one word that you never use to describe the public religion at that time, it would be it would not be fun. Like intelligent and fun were two two adjectives I hadn't expected. And so in the course of that, I started thinking, you know, this is so exciting and it's so interesting and I'm learning so much. 
And people would like to hear this kind of religious voice. And so originally that was a thought. And then, you know, over a period of time, it became an idea that maybe I could do that. And then it became an idea that maybe I could do it on public radio. And I didn't really have a vision so much of like, you know, I'm going to create a weekly national show. I just got fired up that this was something that should be tried. And then it was just a matter of, you know, one step after the other, year after year. And it was a big struggle. <laughs> it was hard. Yeah, you, you began to talk on the radio about spirituality in 2000. And you stated that when you first started out, it was just you all by yourself sneaking into a radio station in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes, I had to go there after I put my daughter to bed because this thing wasn't legitimate. And there was kind of one person who believed in it. And the, the engineers would let me in. <laughs> and you didn't have an engineer helping you. No, no. So so I would I would go into the night engineers and they would you know I would sit alone in a studio but I could ask them for help. <laughs> and there was there seemed to be quite a lot of resistance. There were people that told you you couldn't do a sh- the show that you were imagining that you couldn't do a show that was sixty to ninety minutes. Yeah. But yet you felt this was something that could happen and should happen. So a lot of the resistance. It was a little bit different before nine eleven and after nine eleven. And before nine eleven, it was well. We're not sure this is worth an hour of public radio every week. We don't know if public radio listeners care about religion or have spiritual lives. Or if they do, they want to keep it private. And the other thing, the thing I got after 9-11 was uh, religion is the cause of the worst problems in the world. Mm. (laughs) But, you know, I would say, well, you know, first of all, you could say the same about politics. And we cover politics precisely for that reason. But also, you know, if that is true, then we have to do a better job of talking about this and also drawing out its diversity. And I really did believe that public radio would be a place where you could try that. I couldn't be sure then that this would work. But I thought we had to try. And there were enough people who who got that, you know, who are with me on that. Well, it's been 16 years now. And in that time, (laughs) you've won a Peabody Award, many Webby Awards, and In 2014, you received the National Humanities Medal from President Obama at the White House for, quote, thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence, unquote. Congratulations on this extraordinary success, Krista. Thank you. In 2007, you published your first book, Speaking of Faith, Why Religion Matters and How to Talk About It. And One of the central themes of the book is a term I first learned about when reading the book, the virtue of Ubuntu. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Oh, yeah, Ubuntu, yeah. Ubuntu. So can you describe what that is for our listeners? I can't remember which language it's from, but it was a word that was very pivotal in South Africa during the, the transformation there. And it's the notion that, it's hard to translate directly, but it's the notion that I am through you or because of you, you know, that we need each other, but I think even more existentially framed, that we only exist, that we only are because of each other. There was a further description in the book that really moved me, and that is, to the extent that I am estranged from another person, I am less than human. Mm. And I think that that is such a profound statement about our times as well, that we are so estranged from others and become less human in the process of that estrangement. Yeah, I I had a conversation this year with John Powell, who's a legal scholar and working on a lot of our racial front lines. And, you know, I don't think he used the word Ubuntu, but he was talking about how belonging, relationship and belonging, in fact, are the natural human state. And that you know, he wants to reframe this, you know, the way we talk about the problem of race into the reality of our belonging to each other and how can we live into that. And, you know, he said we do belong into each other. We are in relationship. It can be a bad relationship, <laughs> um, but it's a relationship and it is defining us. Like your first book, your show was originally called Speaking of Faith, but in 2010, you changed the title to Krista Tippett on Being. Did this reflect a shift in your own relationship with faith and spirituality? Um, what was really on my mind and what was on our mind was that the title, Speaking of Faith, which had been the original title of the show, 
the show had evolved and kind of grown up and found its voice. And that was no longer a good description of what happened uh, in the show. It was not so much about speaking of something. We're still working with faith and with people in the depths of traditions, but also with people who are in all kinds of human endeavors, making all kinds of insights and discoveries who might not themselves be religious, but whose insights are spiritually evocative. And also, it was one of the most wonderful things to me about the show that I didn't expect is that from the very beginning, the space was full of people who were atheists and agnostic, who wanted to be part of the discussion of all these important things we talk about when we talk about faith, and who have ethical lives um, and, and moral lives and, uh, and spiritual lives, um, but not in traditional ways. But, you know, to your question, I think that it probably also did reflect how my own passions had become more expansive and spacious. I love the notion of going from of to on. Yeah. It somehow feels really profound. Yeah. But I want to talk about your second book, Einstein's God, which yeah. detailed many of the significant ways your show and your vision continued to evolve. And in the book, you state that the science-religion debate is unwinnable, and it has led us astray. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think it has led us astray from. I think the science-religion debate and the debate that's out there, and we all know what I'm talking about, um, it's false. It's misleading. It's actually not based on any kind of real understanding of what science does or what religion does. And one of the simplest ways to talk about that is that we act like science and religion are reaching different conclusions on the same questions. Science has one answer and religion has another and they duke it out. The truth is that they're they're asking different questions, you know. Even when science and religion are looking at the same phenomenon, which they're often not doing, they're asking different questions of it. I mean, the question of God, in fact, is not something that most true scientists would even pronounce on because it's not something on which, which we can definitively prove or disprove. So the whole evolution thing is just based on a very simplistic understanding of religion. We also bring a simplistic understanding of the history of science to our understanding of that debate because until very recently, you know, the last couple hundred years, I mean, the great scientists, Copernicus and Galileo, Newton, they had a very theological perspective and they brought that together and they believed that any way that they could illuminate the workings of the natural world and the cosmos would would help us better understand the mind of its maker. There was no conflict um, between those things. And these are such two beautiful, vast disciplines in human life and we need both of them to explore the fullness of who we are. I loved how you talked about Einstein and how he approached science with a religious awe. Yeah. Let's talk about your new book. It's a remarkable book, Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. And you start the book by saying, I'm a person who listens for a living. I listen for wisdom and beauty and voices not shouting to be heard. Krista, listening seems to really be a lost art. In fact, I'm not sure that many people really listen at all anymore. I find Mm -hmm. people talk and wait for other people to stop talking so they can start talking again. That's right. How how did this happen? How did we stop listening to each other? Yeah. It's a muscle we don't exercise. You know, I think it's kind of a basic social art, but we've practiced other social arts that actually have made us bad listeners. (laughs) In a very early episode of your show, you spoke to the physician Rachel Naomi Remen about the language she uses with young doctors to describe what they should practice. And you referred to that, or she referred to that as generous listening. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your definition of generous listening. 
you know, say one thing that we have unlearned bringing to an encounter with another human being because we're we've all kind of been trained and raised to be advocates, right? So we go in with a position, and there's there's a place for that, but but we need to be able to set that aside if we're, because we need places where that's not what we're doing. Because so one thing about listening, generous listening, is you, let's say, one really simple characteristic of it is I think the generous listener is ready to be surprised, right? Like you go Mm. into that with an assumption that you don't know everything or understand everything and you are truly curious, which means you're open to having whatever assumptions you do bring unsettled and you're going to be graceful about that and kind of curious about that when it happens. Yeah, most people don't like to admit that they don't know something. I think you wrote that the only people that you felt were really comfortable with not knowing things were scientists. (laughs) Yes. It's a virtue for them. Yeah. (laughs) In one of your rare interviews online, you said there's a very simple reason that listening is not something that we do all the time. It's too much work. (laughs) How how can a person start work on getting better at listening? Is it possible to do that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a virtue. I think it's a virtuous practice. And it's just like anything else. Like you, we have to develop muscle memory. And it's and also the good news about virtues and practices is that you can't be afraid of it just because you, you're not good at it or you haven't done it very much. Like the whole point is you won't be great at it at first, like anything that you haven't done much. But you, you have to do it and you have to practice it. And, you know, that whole discipline of... You know, working on being truly curious, being willing to be surprised, which can feel kind of strange when what we've been trained to do is represent our opinions. Um, no and nod, right? You yeah. know something and you nod that you agree or you, or you that know we it think, too. We think we have to win, right? We mm. think we have to win when we go into so many encounters. Like we have to be right and that that's what's at stake. Those are instincts that are that are well-worn and well-developed. And so it's a process of kind of becoming more aware of those and finding ways to still them. And the more you do it, and, you know, this is true of anything, the more you do it, the better you get. In an episode of On Being with David, I say he quotes Borges and states that the soul is contained in the human voice. Yeah. Would you agree with that? You know, it's an audacious statement. Like, I don't know that I would say it that way. It's a huge thing to say. Dave also says listening is an act of love. I mean, when he says both of those things, I feel that it's true, but I don't know if I would have said it that boldly. I do think that the human voice contains so much, and I really love working in this medium with the discipline of the human voice, and the contrast is with the visuals, which we you know, we're used to, you know, just realizing how much information we're taking in that actually gets in the way of what the voice can convey. Oh, absolutely. I think we can get really distracted by looking as opposed to listening. Yeah. You refer to your book as a collection of pointers that treat the margins as seriously as the noisy center. And I, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you mean by the two terms, the margins and the noisy center. I've talked to so many smart and wise people across the years, people who've seen social change happen and been part of it and studied it. And one thing that they all know and can document across history is that at any given moment, the things we're focused on the things we're shining a light on, the things that are getting all the attention or the people who are getting all the attention are probably not the ones who are changing the world. It's like, you know, then history happens and you look back and you say, oh, that, that right. was going on. And I think that's as true now with all of our media as it's ever been. And I actually love, I love knowing that. I love knowing that the surprising thing is out there waiting to change the world and we're not even paying attention and it's kind of gestating quietly. In Becoming Wise, you talk about suffering from depression several times in your life and 
Even when talking about your time at Brown, you state that great leaps, however exhilarating, are hard on mortal creatures. At the bottom of a dark place I now recognize as my first depression, early in my second year of college, I was overwhelmed by all the books I hadn't read, the places I hadn't traveled. I felt I would never catch up with my peers in that rarefied world. And I'd like to talk about this now, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, it's fine. You did an episode on depression wherein you talked with Andrew Solomon, Parker Palmer, and Anita Barrows, and they spoke very candidly, very poignantly about their experiences with depression. And you wrote about this particular episode on your blog in this way. I took the making of this program as an occasion to walk myself with some trepidation back through the spiritual territory of despair. Like many millions of people, I've experienced severe clinical depression. And I think that depression is one of the most misleading and inadequate words in our vocabulary. Krista, why do you feel like the word depression is misleading? Um, again, you know, it's like the word God. It's not big mm, enough. It's not big enough, yeah. It's yeah. not big enough. It's, um, I also think, you know, we think of depression, we think of sadness, but it's darkness and it's it's the shutting down of all sense of possibility. Yeah, Andrew Sullivan referred to depression as despair. And having recently gone through a depression myself, this really resonated with me as a much more accurate word. It was a yeah. sense of hopelessness yeah, um, as opposed to depressed. Yes. Depressed is almost like blue, you know? <laughs> right. And depression is uh, all-encompassing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. all-encompassing. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You don't want to do anything. Yeah. And it's physical. Yeah. It's physical as much as it's emotional. Given how many people suffer from depression, why do you think there's still such shame associated with it? I don't know. I mean, that show... The Soul in Depression was one of the first things we created, and it was very close in years to my depression, and it was scary to do. And I have to say, I listened back to it because I I asked Andrew Solomon, who's been so, you know, who's helped a lot of people by being so open and writing so oh, freely incredible. Right, about his depression, and I asked him about the medications he was on. And, yes. And I listened to that like last year because we were thinking like, could we put this back on the air? But it felt, it did feel like culturally we've moved on to a slightly different place. So, I mean, I think it is more out there. Why do you feel like we've moved on culturally to a different place? I actually listened to it a few days ago and I found it to be... It felt incredibly relevant. You know, we talk a lot about failure now in our culture. Um, That that stigma seems to have gone away. It's almost like a badge now, having failure. Um, Rejection still has quite a lot of stigma attached to it. Um, and, And it seems like depression or imperfection is also still really stigmatized. Yeah, well, we've rediscovered failure as part of life, and then we've immediately turned it into a place on the path to success. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And we can't do that with depression. Um, Well, there's just this misunderstanding about it, like it's a bad mood. Right. Right, and it's the way you feel. Yeah. And it's just so much more, it grips you so much differently than that. On your blog, you wrote, depression can have purely physiological origins. It may be triggered by old sadnesses grown unbearable or anger turned inward, as one saying goes, but it becomes a way of being in and moving through the world. Yeah. How did you recover from your depressions? I would say my my depression was about the, the old sadnesses grown unbearable, mm. but it was and and in that it was about me needing to kind of really tell the real story of my life as opposed to the story I told myself. And I was lucky because I I did find a good therapist and it was when I started therapy that I actually completely crashed into the depression. And I think that's because I had been like holding it at bay somehow. I'm very, very exhausting to do that, but not letting it happen somehow. And then somehow, you know, all this was so unconscious. I think then I was in a safe place and there was somebody who was going to help me. And then I just completely fell apart. I, I was really struck by a quote that you included from the poet Jane Kenyon on the episode mm. about how depression fades and, and how you fall back into yourself again. Yes. And, and, I, and I definitely relate to that with this sense of, of trying to figure out 
how to feel again or how to think about feeling and feel about thinking. Well, and and also I think that was about so I had I was also fortunate because the medications, you know, worked for me. Basically, I didn't mm-hmm. have bad reactions. So it was a combination of two years of talking this through, you know, every week and then the meds. But I think that Jane Kennan quote is also about the medication. You know, there's, I think, a lot. I I do agree with you. There's this still stigma. You think, are you, am I taking meds? Am I just, is this an artificial tinkering? But at their best, they help you fall back into yourself. It's a very vulnerable place you're in now, right? For a long time, because you you know now that that dark place is a place you can go to and you don't want ever to go there again, right? But you know it's possible. It's part of your experience. Well, you do learn, I think, as you very, very eloquently put it, how big emotions are when you're going yeah. through something like that. Yeah. How did falling back into yourself change who you fell back into? It's a bit of a meta question. But. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, I i mean, this is all pretty personal. Like, I don't think my marriage didn't really survive me um, becoming more of myself. Then I, I think it would have had to be, you know, it, w- it needed to be, a, the relationship needed to become new in some ways, right? And, um, and that, that wasn't possible in that relationship. So that's, you know, that's a that's a very big implication of it. But, you know, I think of it as a span of time, like between when I started the therapy and when I had the depression. And, you know, I think over the next five to ten years, I became, oh, I just, you know, used the science just so much more at home in myself. And it was so hard to be me for <laughs> until that. I was so much harder. I was so hard on myself. And... There was this effort that went into simple things that was completely unnecessary. And the beautiful gift after depression was letting go of that and letting go of that. And so actually, you know, just being at ease for the first time in my life. And, you know, that's incredible. Yes, it is. I'm 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 still working on that part. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you categorize your book into five sections, words, flesh, love, faith, and hope. And in the section on love, you state in the book that you grew up not telling the truth about love. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, it's very much related to, you know, my old sadness has grown mm-hmm. unbearable. I mean, um, like a lot of families, there was just a lot of pain and there were a lot of things that weren't, that were true but not ever discussed. And yet... My parents, like I think a lot of parents in that age, kind of lived this role play, marriage as role play. And so we always said, you know, we have such a loving family and our parents love each other so much and your father loves you. And But um, the reality uh, was much more complicated than that. Or, you know, I mean, I think that love as a feeling was there and was real, but how that manifests, like what that actually acts like, it had a lot of damaging aspects to it. So, but that was the narrative. And so... It sounds like that was what you wished. Yeah. It was, and, and also it was a kind of wish that we cleaved to, right? Mm-hmm. We kind of turned that into, well, well this, this, will, this is true because we're saying it's true. And I think that's something people do with all kinds of variation all the time. But I had to tell the truth about that lack of love, that failure of love to actually be at home in myself, right? So that's a hard thing. Is it is it scary to be putting it all out there? It's really scary, yeah. In fact, I haven't, you know, this is the first time I've really talked about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I after I wrote the book, that was some of the last stuff that I realized belonged there and that I wasn't being honest if it wasn't there. And then it shifted a lot of things kind of in subtle ways. And then when I was done, I, I think I had this period of, oh, I don't know, this kind of lump in my stomach about that being out there. And now, I don't know, I there it's there, it's done. <laughs> yeah. When your marriage ended, you write about how you told yourself that you had a hole in your life where love should be and 
it reminded me of the conversation you had with Brene Brown, where yeah. you talked about C.R. Snyder's research at the University of Kansas and his belief that hope is brokenhearted on the way to becoming wholehearted. Yeah. Later in the chapter, you state, as I settled into singleness, I grew saner, kinder, more generous, more loving in untheatrical, everyday ways. I can't name the day when I suddenly realized that the lack of love in my life was not a reality, but a poverty of imagination and a carelessly narrow use of an essential word. And it, it occurred to me as we're talking that the theme that seems to be popping up is this sort of inappropriateness or inefficiency of certain words, God, <laughs> depression, <right>. love. Yeah. <laughs> you say that love is a superstar virtue of virtues, the most watered down word in the English language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Along with God and depression. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those are maybe the three big ones. <laughs> so, so how did that poverty of imagination shift for you? You know, nothing actually shifted in my life. But what I realized, what I named is the fact that, you know, there's part of me that's always going around saying, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, people say, are you dating? You know, you know have you met anyone? And, and there's some part of me that's saying, oh, I, you know, I don't have love. Like, everything's great, but I don't have love in my life. And I was just, that's not true. I have so much love in my life. I have so many different forms of love. I don't have this one kind of relationship. And sure, I'd like to have it again. But I am complete without this. And, and in fact, I am loved and I'm, I'm loving. And in fact, I was learning to be loved and to be loving in ways that I hadn't been before, partly out of the kind of the, the fruition of this, you know, what we're talking about of like coming through depression and, you know, a decade later, you're still kind of waking up to yourself. The um, wild, silky part of ourselves, as yeah. Mary Oliver would oh, say. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. One of the things that was really incredibly moving was when you state that you've come to understand that for most of your life, when you were looking for love, you were actually looking to be loved. What has changed in your view of, of what it means to love and be loved? I, th I think on a personal level, I've just, in some ways, it's gotten less complicated for me that I just take more joy in loving and being loved and and don't overthink it, just let it kind of embody it better. But on a, on a kind of loftier level that feel, also feels really relevant to me, I'm puzzling over this question of love in our common life, in our public spaces, and love as, you know, the only human capacity that's big enough to meet a lot of the really devastating crises that we face, whether it's, you know, refugees or our economy or race, somehow this idea of our belonging to each other, of how we are to each other, of who we are to each other is really existential. And this, this is not love in a romantic sense. And I don't even think we know how to practice this kind of love, you know, something that's really muscular and robust and practical in, in public. But I, that's what I want to explore I think, moving forward. It sounds like it's about a way of thinking about love in a more spiritual way as opposed to a more selfish way. Yeah, as spiritual and practical at the same time. Mm -hmm. you know? Because I don't, again, it's kind of like depression, right? I don't think that this is love, a thing you feel. Like it's not, I, I love you, right? Right. It's like love as a way of being, love as things you do. And possibly in the absence of feeling that, and possibly um, when that's not what you feel at all, but can you be loving because our common life depends on it? So it's really for a common good. Yeah. My last question is when you often end your show with, you ask your guests what it means to be human. And I'd like to pose that question to you. <laughs> what do you think it means to be human? I would have dreaded this if I've thought about it because I'm always aware when I'm asking that question that it's just an enormous question. Oh, it's a huge question. <laughs> um, and it's kind of been an experiment lately. I've just recently started doing that at the end. And But I think that what we've just been talking about, this reality of our need for each other and the unromantic reality of that, you know, um, 
and it's taken me all these years I've lived, you know, 55 years to kind of really know that somehow what it means to be human is is about the relationship, the quality of relationship and curiosity that I bring to other people. That's exacting. It's also kind of often instantaneously gratifying. Mm. And, you know, because it doesn't always have to be intense relationships. It's just like deciding to be kind, you know, in really little ways that can completely change someone's day. Genuine connection. Yeah. Again, I, I think I was raised in, you know, the middle of America, the self-made man, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Uh, I went out, you know, to conquer the world and I had a lot of success. It was very hard on me. And so, but where I grow into, as I think, I'm not saying I've become wise, but I'm wiser than I used to be, it's all about who I am to other people and with other people and also discovering the pleasure in that. I love the notion of becoming wise as opposed to being wise. Yeah, that's because right. Because it's an ongoing, lifelong <laughs> experiment. Yes, and always imperfect. Um, but like if we live into that, I live into that question of wisdom, then as Rilke said, I think that uh, itself forms us. Krista, you conclude your book by stating, the kind of conversation I spend my life in is, like poetry, a tribute to the human capacity to articulate truth at the edges of what words can touch. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today on Design Matters. Oh, thank you, Debbie. It's been incredible. Krista Tippett's new book is called Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living, and it is truly magnificent. And you can hear her on her public radio show and podcast, On Being. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudley. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 